I would love to have you take your Bibles, two things here, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter eight, uh, 18, rather, and then find those sermon notes that will be, well, always important, but especially important today, and you'll want to have those handy very, very quickly. But John 18, I'm going to jump right in here to this text this morning as we head into a, a whole new sermon series and so on, but... I'm coming right away to John 18 to help us define what it is we're doing and where we're going. Uh, As I come to John 18, verse 33, just the context quickly, of course, uh, this is that latter part of the Gospel of John telling the story of Jesus. Jesus has lived his perfect life. He has, at this point, uh, been, been arrested, and he is headed toward the cross where he will pour out his life's blood uh, to pay for our sin. And this is that moment when he stands before Pilate and this uh, pivotal conversation takes place. John 18, 33, as we read God's word, uh, it says this. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And of course, since those words are spoken and recorded, people have wondered and conjectured about the way in which Pilate said, what is truth? Was he actually asking? Was he sarcastic? Was he seeking? What was the, what was the nuance of that? Well, I look back primarily to verse 36. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, Ever since Jesus said this, identified himself indeed as a king. He is a king, king of kings, lord of lords. He identifies the, the tension, if you will, that we will be discussing today and in these weeks to come. What does it mean to have these two worlds? Jesus is a king, and yes, a king of a kingdom, the whole business of the kingdom, a whole topic of conversation beyond really this series. But the idea of, of two worlds. Now, of course, Jesus is defining a kingdom that works a different way from the kingdom of this world, isn't he? He says, my, if my kingdom was from this world, my servants would be fighting. We'd have swords, but we don't, we don't do that. The kingdom of God Biblically, you know, from the story of the Bible, does not advance well with, with swords and coercion. If you know your church history, you know that whenever the church, uh, those in the name of Jesus, have picked up swords or used coercion to push the kingdom of God, so to speak, it has not historically worked out well to evangelize with the sword in your hand. You know, repent or die does not advance the cause of Christ. So Jesus here, identifying himself as a king, king of a kingdom, but a kingdom that works a bit different 
from this one in which we live, this tension. Now, that tension has been discussed, of course, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, various historical experiments of this. Again, if you know your history, I can't recount all the details of that. Various Constantine and so on, as people tried to either evangelize or rule with Christianity and a sword. Um, John Stott, one of his great books on preaching, John, of course, a longtime uh, preacher, now with the Lord. One of his great books on preaching is under the title, Between Two Worlds. What's he talking about? Well, this. You know, a preacher or Christian stands between two worlds and has to address both. He stands between two worlds. We're familiar with, with texts that say, for example, um, the weapons of our warfare are, are not of this world, or not carnal, if you use the old King James. The weapons of our warfare are not of this world. Uh, different weapons, different weapons. Well... Paul said a similar thing, didn't he? Philippians 3, where he said, our citizenship is in heaven. Our, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, your study notes, of course, I say all that by way of introducing the notes. Um, I mentioned last week this sermon series. Today I've given you all the titles for these eight weeks. Um, I come to this sermon series with a bit of preparation, but also a bit of trepidation. Because I know we're stepping into some areas in which God's people uh, have very, very strong opinions. Some of these um, will be less, um, uh, dare I say, divisive. Some of these areas you'd better pay careful attention to because they'll be a little more directly uh, confronting prevailing opinion in the world. And um, boy, here we go. Um, I, I, I'm happy about the chance to talk about these, though, because if these are issues running through the culture and Christians don't talk about them, then I think we're missing an opportunity. And so I think it's good that we talk about these topics. I have a couple of, uh, of reminders, and I'll issue those along the way here as we introduce ourselves to this topic, and then we'll pray in a minute. Believe me, we will. But I, I mentioned here a bibliography I brought a few books, and I decided to kind of do this all at once, rather than a new book of the week. Um, but I think it's important. And, uh, you know, different people handle books different ways. Um, I have not finished reading all of these. I'm down to the last two or three. But, but staff-wise, we've been working on this topic for months and discussing different aspects of some of these. Some of these books I'm going to comment on today um, the list I've given you come from a broad range of people, theologians, lawyers, historians, philosophers, and everything in between. Um, some of these are books that you, I know, because I know most of you, <clears throat> that you would read with great delight and say amen to every chapter. Uh, some of these you might not. That doesn't mean I don't recommend the book. Sometimes we need to have somebody tick us off to make us think a little bit. Amen to that. Okay, one of those, uh, if, if you would like to have your soul stirred uh, a bit uh, on various chapters, interesting book. Uh, one of our staff guys pointed this out to me. I picked it up and read it and said, you're right. Several chapters I found um, uh, abrupt or irritating, and I don't think so at all. But it helped me to hear that opinion from the voice of one who would name the name of Jesus and say, I see that different than you do. And to hear that person say it in his or her own words. 
So if you'd like to be stirred up and you like that sort of thing, <clears throat> still evangelical, and you see the, uh, the editor there. Um, but, but good. I agreed with most of it, not all of it. Uh, but some of these other books are like that, very different in tone, some of them more academic in presentation, some of them a little more like bedtime reading, uh, a little more uh, cup of coffee, and this is wonderful to talk about over dinner. Others, you, you might put it down. I'll comment on them as we go ahead or go along in these weeks, though several today, but I wanted you to know what I'm thinking and what th- some of the things that have influenced me. If you go to the next page, I want to comment on reminders and cautions, and that is the point where we will we'll pray together uh, for the morning and head into the text in a different way. I call this reminders and cautions about not only today, but primarily about this sermon series. Because of the way in which we're addressing this, I want to acknowledge that this is a different style of preaching than we normally engage in here at Sunset Bible Church. We spend most of our time working our way through Bible books, as you know if you're with us. And uh, this series is a little different, and I, I just want to identify that difference. But our goal is to help us on these topics to be more, to live more faithfully and redemptively. And I emphasize both of those faithful, redemptive, faithful, and redemptive. Okay, faithful to the text, redemptively in style. And by, by commenting on those terms, I, I need to go back. I realized just now that I missed one of my key issues on page one. But that's going to be my cue, faithful and redemptive. I'm going to go back to the very beginning where it says thinking Christianly about all of life. That was my opening comment. I went right by it. I was so excited to move on to the next, okay? So that's my excuse. By using the term Christianly for this series, I'm after something very specific. Uh, I didn't just say thinking biblically about all of life. I like the term biblically, but I'm wanting to capture something with a different term. Two emphases then, content, correct content. I want to think accurately. That's the place for the word biblically, okay? The second element is attitude. Sometimes Christians are biblically accurate and irritating unnecessarily. So I'm, I'm talking about our attitude, the way in which we communicate. Um, you know this if you're married, because you probably are right often. Uh, you can be right but very irritating in how you are right. And Christians are sometimes this way too, aren't they? And so I'm wanting to think Christianly, and by that to say to all of us as followers of Jesus, um, we want to be right, meaning as biblical as we can be, and we want to be as Christian in our tone, in our word choice, and our manner as, as possible. So I'm wanting to press that issue. That's especially important on some of the topics we're going to get down to because you may have a correct perspective on that and not be Christian in how you push it, how you pronounce it, how you, how you speak to others, how you talk about those people, whoever those people are. So we're after both. Okay? You with me on this? Amen? Yes? Okay. I think it's important. So back to that other place, to live faithfully, yes, faithful to the Bible and redemptively. It's really a similar, a similar way to do it. Now, I'm giving some disclaimers here. We'll not be exhaustive on any single topic. If you think we're going to talk one sermon and cover everything about traditional marriage and why it's a value, you're missing it. I can't say everything in one sermon on, on that topic. We'll try to say something important, 
but not all of it. We may skip what you think is most important. I'm so sorry. We'll not address every nuance. We may give more airtime to an emphasis different from yours. It's very possible. You may want to meet me in the parking lot afterwards. Um, Please don't. Um, (laughs) Please be nice, I'm saying. I put it there. Please be nice, and please strive with all of those of us who will be preaching in this series to be truly biblical in both content and our attitude, and we want to honor Christ. Okay, is that a good introduction? Is that enough? Uh, Are you scared yet? As I, uh, no, I'm not scared, but I'm aware. I'm aware of the ground in which we tread. But I want to pray for us now, and then there are a couple of elements on our opening conversation today that I would like to, to press into today. But if you'd pray with me, that would be wonderful. Our Father, we, we come with joy to your word um, and to these topics at hand. Um, we, we seek to live wisely in this world, and we so find ourselves, especially in these days, uh, faced with, with topics to, to be addressed or to think about, and sometimes we're kind of lost at how to go about it. Sometimes we're asked things by others uh, about, about what it is we believe or how can we possibly believe it or, or something like that. And we so want to, to be accurate biblically and kind in our manner and winsome in our words to be used by you in this world. We want to do both, not just one of those. And so, Father, would you help us even today as we talk about this opening topic of the posture of the Christian with the culture around us? Uh, this has been an issue of controversy and difference among believers through, the, through the, the generations. And so today we want to grab a couple of things and, 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 and stir our hearts with them. So would you help us with this is our prayer. And we come to you with this in Jesus' name. Amen. So with, with that then, from John 18, I would love for you to go with me to the book of 1 Peter. There are a couple of texts we'll spend a little longer time in, and this, this is going to be one of those. We want to come to 1 Peter, and I want to start at the text that I mentioned there right underneath that heading in your notes, 1 Peter 2, 9 to 13, and then we'll broaden our, our consideration to other parts of 1 Peter. But this first heading is one of the two things that I want to emphasize today about the Christian and culture. You know, is, is, is culture a friend or foe? Is my sermon title, of course. Is, is culture a friend or, or a foe? How, what is the posture of Christians with culture? And so I'm saying this, first of all, God's people live as aliens and strangers in this world. That's a first emphasis. And I find it here in 1 Peter chapter 2. I would start reading at verse 9. And um, we'll see that particular emphasis uh, down in uh, verse, verse 11. But First Peter 2 then, we, we read this. Uh, Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. There's a purpose word, in order that, you could say, in order that, he may proclaim, Lord, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the, the Gentiles honorable, So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
I, I took the phrase aliens and strangers from the NAS, uh, one of the NIV versions as well uses that, the, those terms in verse 11. Uh, Peter says, I urge you as. ESV, of course, sojourners and exiles. Um, other of your translations in front of you say it just a bit different. But the emphasis in either case is on the temporary nature of your time here. And on, and please get this, on how this world is not your home. It's not your true home. So when you as a child of God feel the, 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 the collision with the culture around you and you have that sense in your heart, this isn't the way it should be. Listen, you're right in that. You're right. So many things around us aren't the way it should be. And it's important for you to know this is not it. This is not your home. It's not your true home. And this will never be your true home, okay? Your true home is in another place. It's in the presence of God. And in this one, this broken world. So, so, so don't think that when you feel that, that, that tension, that angst, and we got to fix this. So let me tell you something. This side of heaven, you'll never fix it, okay? So, so please, whether you put your... Whether you erroneously put your hope in politics or uh, if everybody in the country would just read this book or pass a certain law, that'll fix it. No, 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 no. That doesn't mean don't read the books and don't pass the laws and don't deal with politics. That isn't the point. The point is don't put your hope in those things to fix this broken world because it's not going to be fixed until the king of kings rules and reigns. Okay? So don't put your hope in this. Don't, don't find yourself thinking, we got, we, got to, we got to button this thing up. Oh, no, no, this is, no, this world is not your home. Aliens and strangers. And this whole book, 1 Peter, presses on this. And it's a call from Peter to say to, to God's people, as we'll see, scattered abroad, hey, think a different way, okay? Don't think like a permanent resident. Think like a temporary one. Think like an exile and a stranger would think. This isn't your homeland, uh, you give you a reference there to Hebrews 11, uh, similar. I love that text. More time of the day, I would, we would go to Hebrews 11 too. They, they, these people seek a country, not their own. They're looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. Go back to 1 Peter 1 then. So I just want to touch on some of the ways in which Peter says that you should think different. You should live different because of the way you think. So right out of the chute in 1 Peter 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles or chosen exiles of the dispersion, he lists some countries and he steps right into some amazing theology. Those exiles. Now, uh, sometimes we can think of this as Jewish people scattered abroad. There is an element of this certainly inherent in the text. But those who massage through some of the, 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 the Greek terms and um, use of terms, absence of terms, definite article, absence of it here in this text, for example, would, would see the way Peter writes this, not so much emphasizing the, the Jewish people scattered abroad, but the little bigger picture of God's people wherever you are in this world, even beyond these specific terms used. He's writing to people who know this world is not their home. He's writing to you. Okay, to, to remind you that this world is not your home. To the exiles scattered abroad, thank you, Peter, for that emphasis, aliens and strangers. So he calls us to live a certain way, a different way, to think differently. Verse 16 of chapter 2, 
I'm just going to read some of these, not without a lot of comment. I gave you the text right there on your study sheet so you'd see where I'm going. But I just took a number of these that emphasize think different and therefore live different. So chapter 2, verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And then he tells you a little about what that should look like. Chapter 3, verses 14 to 17 even, he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. Have no fear of them. Don't, don't live in fear, he says. Nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Christ the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense, an apologetics. Where we get our term apologetics is from the, the Greek word Peter uses here. Make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with, what is it? Gentleness and respect. I like that. Thank you, Peter. You're right. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it's better to suffer for doing evil, if that should be God's will, than for doing, uh, suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil, indeed. An apologetic, give a defense, and yet doing so with gentleness and respect, our emphases as well. Chapter 4, verse 12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So if it isn't easy here doing this, he says, why are you so surprised? What what did you think? What did you think? Don't be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you, but rather, verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, and it is. You see the emphasis on thinking different, because your home is not here. There's a day his glory will be revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Wow, I like that. Looking forward to the day his glory is revealed. Your true home, your true king. Chapter 5 Verse 10, and after you've suffered a little while, that is, you've lived here for however long God keeps you here, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the the dominion forever, ever, amen. Yes, yes, after you've suffered a little while, whatever that looks like here, whatever your life looks like, is it tough, is it hard? There's another day. The whole book, I just use those as examples. He's saying think different because this world isn't your home. You're in exile and a stranger. Don't be so surprised if you don't feel at home all the time. Now, I put on your study notes here, all of these emphasize that we're called to live by the metrics of God's kingdom, a different kingdom, different rules, different, different ways of thinking. Peter, put away your sword. That isn't the way we do it. Keeping an eye on the finish line. Now, the emphasis here, we're called to be distinct. I think that's the, the first element here. Yes, aliens and strangers, there's a distinction to take place. Now, I, I, I want to, to comment on several things here, and I, a couple of, of, of books to help me do that. Um, D.A. Carson's book, Christ in Culture Revisited, is more of an academic treatment of this topic. It's been out for a few years. But in this book, <clears throat> he he has a section here, and again, it's, it's, it's a bit heady and difficult to wade through, but some of you are heady and have the waders on. So for, for those of you who like this, here you go. And if you'd rather flee from this part of the conversation, just you know, read your Bible for a minute. But 
he, he, he mentions a, a theologian from past generations um, who, who used five descriptors of the posture of Christians to culture down through the years. He's not saying five that he approves of. He's just saying, here are five different ways to do it. And you might, uh, he, he, you might not see all the differences, but he identifies them and then talks about them at some length. So I'm just going to list these for you, perhaps just to whet your appetite. You might want to look this up if you really want to think about this more deeply. But, but Carson, quoting this other theologian, says, here are five ways Christians have thought about this. And I see it in churches and denominations today, some of these. So number one would be uh, Christ against culture. This is not in your notes. It's free material. So, and you, I don't know if you want to write it down anywhere, uh, as you wish. Christ against culture. This, is, this would be those who like to, you hear this sometimes, they like to speak prophetically. They've got their finger in your face. Okay, Christ is against culture, and I'm now going to tell you in what way. And what matters is not how much you like it, but I'm going to tell you. So there, that's a posture, and there are churches and denominations that set themselves up that way. Isn't that right? They're going to let you know. And you may not like it, but it doesn't matter. Who cares what you think? And anyway, Christ against culture. You know who you are. Number two, the Christ of culture. The Christ of culture. And this would be an emphasis uh, that has shown up at various times in church history that would see Christ maybe embedded in culture, maybe enculturated. I, I would see this as too much harmony between the two. Married. Non-distinct. So not only against, but now this one would say, well, we should love culture. And so they do, the Christ of culture. That would be a third, a second position. A third then, Christ, Christ above culture. And this is a different position than the first Christ against, but Christ above it, um, he would, uh, the, this theologian would say this is a majority position uh, in the church overall through the years, but, but Christ at the center, Christ perhaps um, um, dictating culture. And there are Christians who'd like that. Christ controlling culture. You might even have a sword in your hand, but maybe you'd keep it in its sheath. But, but Christ, Christ above culture and dictating culture, Christ controlling culture would be another way to put that. All right? Uh, number four. Uh, this is a fun one. <clears throat> Christ and culture in paradox. Okay. Um, it's about that easy to understand meaning not very, <clears throat> but if you think of, 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 if you understand philosophy and so on, dualism, <clears throat> dualism is certainly the category here, where these are just kind of two separate worlds, maybe never the two shall meet, so, you know, some, some Christians just withdraw, but, but two separate worlds, Christ, um, similar to the first, Christ against culture, but maybe just a little bit different. Maybe you're not going to yell at culture, but you're going to withdraw from it, and there are Christian groups who do that a little more, Right? And stay out of it. And then finally, number five, Christ, the transformer of culture. These would be those who say, yes, culture, it's got all kinds of problems, but a Christian position would say we should transform culture. Sometimes that takes the place of um, trying to be, uh, uh, even theonomists would be in that we're going to fix the world and bring in the kingdom. Um, so there are different ways of, of, of looking at this. The transforming element, uh, salt and light, uh, it would be another way to put it, maybe not as extreme as some I just mentioned. So Christians have looked at 
at things differently. And I, I, I hasten here to, to mention these two that are more accessible. And forgive me if I step on your toes here. This is from another writer who's talking about interacting Christianly in this world. And he says, in the last century, there have been two general responses to the challenges that culture raises. The first option, he just gives two, not five. The first option is to withdraw and attack. And sorry, I'm just reading his words. He says, this response is typically, typically associated, commonly associated with the religious right. Withdraw and attack. Now, you might find yourself uh, saying, that those are my people. We don't do that. No problem. He's just saying this has often been done. Maybe not by you, but by some. So you're going to get them. So the second response at the other end of the spectrum, he would say, is to imitate and assimilate. And that would be typically the secular left. And sometimes Christians line up over there because they don't want to be withdraw and attackers. So they go the other way. So he's giving two polar extremes. So, so where are you? Did you hear me mention one of those that you, your heart and your manner is drawn toward? Are you, are you the one who likes to say, hey, you don't have to like this, but I'm going to tell you? Is that you? Hmm. Are you a culture transformer? Interesting. Some of those have things to say about them. Some I don't like at all. Or they can be done in an ugly manner. But these are different ways in which Christians have, have tried to live out a life as aliens and strangers in interacting a bit with culture. Now, I put on your study notes, please look at this, danger. Danger. When God's people forget that they're to be aliens and strangers, they can become too at home in this world, and the gospel urgency and the call to be salt and light is lost. So there's a danger to each of these two elements that I'm addressing today. The danger of, of, of living as strangers and aliens without the second half of this is that, is that you, can, you can become, well, if you forget... If you forget the distinctiveness, you become too at home in this world, which, if I may say, I think I may. I think the bigger danger in the church these days, church in America, is that we are too at home in this world. I I do think in many cases we have lost our distinctiveness in running from some of the thou shalt's and thou shalt nots of past generations. I think we've run quite a ways into the thou shalt's and maybe lost some of our distinctiveness as believers. You might think about that. I didn't say be weird. I didn't say be a jerk. I'm just saying, I think sometimes we're too similar to the world. I've, I've heard one too many times uh, Christians say, well, I want my non-Christian friends to know that Christians can have fun too. You ever heard that? Can I just say this? I do not know anybody who's come to Christ because they had an epiphany. Hey, Christians can have fun. I need to come to Christ. I do not think that is a biblical evangelistic method. Okay? So you might want to think about that if you've ever said that. They need to know. Nobody's doubting that. Uh, Get off the party bus. Uh, Preach the gospel. Enough on that. God's people should live as aliens and strangers. Now, at the same time, Element number two, God's people should be a redemptive presence in this world. Those are my two emphases today when we think about culture. Oh, aliens and strangers, yes, in this world, not of this world. This, this world is not our home, and don't you forget that. At this very same time, God's people should be a redemptive presence in the world. And here I want to shift for a moment to James 
chapter 1, which you know is a book that seeks to be intensely practical on such things. James chapter 1, and I'm just going to read several things where, where James weds, he brings together faith and action. I just want to remind us of this. Redemptive presence, redemptive living. These are just a few of the places where James says it. Right at the beginning, of course, James 1, starting verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its perfect or full work, full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's what happens when you memorize one version and read another, is the one you learned it in comes out and you look the other way. One text where James says, your faith is not to be just a private faith. It should be lived out. Now, before you move on, before you skip this thought too much, listen, this is a... This is a cultural battlefield right now in our world. Did you know this? Um, who belongs in the public square? And Christian, speaking to you, you are being pressured, whether you know it or not. You're being pressured to keep your faith out of the public square and to make it private. That is the prevailing call in this world. Sometimes Christians who haven't thought about this swallow it. Uh, the public square, who belongs there? And you, you, it's, these things are said differently. Um, Oz Guinness addresses this at some length in this book. Uh, this is a, a, a meatier book to read, well worth it if you, if you are up for that sort of thing. It's on your list. It's called The Case for Civility. He defines... Uh, the public square in these three categories. Uh, one, the naked public square, which is what, what I'm, I'm saying is being pressed today. That is, get your faith out of the public square. It, the public discussion should be devoid of that. Uh, you hear it today, right now. Um, I, I saw it on the news twice from our new Supreme Court nominee. There's a, there's a, I'm not picking on her. Don't, don't hear me pick on It's not it. I'm picking on the comment where, where she says something that is very politically uh, wise, expedient, but I'm picking on it right here. She says, there's a line for this, oh, don't worry, I'm going to keep my faith off the bench, basically. It's a quote from a speech in the past. She's a devout Catholic, as you know, and she's saying, oh, no, no, my faith, my faith system won't influence my judgment. That's a nod to what some would call today the naked public square. Your faith should not be there. Do you see any problems with that? Yes, you should. You should see problems with that because the public square will will be dominated by somebody's values. And Oz Guinness, in this book, points out the absolute philosophical impossibility of a truly naked public square, meaning there are no values present. And he's pointing out somebody's values will be present. Somebody's will be. Now, the sacred public square is what some would see in our history. That is, was owned by the Christians. And he talks about how uh, the challenges of that in a pluralistic world. Uh, If the term pluralism bugs you, um, you should read this book by attorney John Inazu. It's called uh, Confident Pluralism. No, seriously, this is a... I got on to this guy, attorney, Christian attorney, because he wrote this book with Tim Keller called Uncommon Ground. 
Tim Keller and John Inazu. And I went, that was a really good book. I mean, the contributions of an attorney here were super good. So I should go see if he wrote anything else. And he did. And I, this was a great book on pluralism in, in a place called America, which may be a challenge to you if you think of America as a capital C Christian nation. I mean something by that, that we need to get back to. Am I making you think a little bit? John and Ozzy will talk about how countries work. And if you want to invite other people to your country or live there yourself, uh, what do you do about this? Can other, can other viewpoints be represented? And what Guinness would argue for. So sacred public square, it's got some problems. Naked public square, impossibility. Oz Guinness argues for a third option that he calls the civil public square, where there is mutual respect for people of different viewpoints, no genuine mutual respect, that if I disagree with you, I don't have to call you an idiot. And if you disagree with me, you don't have to firebomb my car. But a place where you can speak respectfully to people who might see it different and be kind to one another. And he would call that living out the gospel. Now, these things should make you think, what is it you are after? What would you see as ideal? But if you like to think about such things, what's the role of faith in the public? Well, uh, Os Guinness, really a, a good book to read. I'll be referring more to this book in a later sermon when we talk about uh, civility. Why civility is a Christian value, not just a civil value. Civility is a Christian value. And I think um, even church history plays this out, as at times Christians who disagree on points of theology, shamefully have taken the sword. This ought not to be. No. So examples of this, of course, abound. God's people should be a redemptive presence in this world, uh, not living apart from your values. So when someone tells you to, to, I didn't say, you know, force your values on somebody else as people warn us about. I'm just saying, don't, you don't have to pretend like your faith doesn't matter. You don't have to pretend like you have no values or where they came from. Not at all. But you also don't have to be a jerk in how you communicate that. I use an example. This is after worship service, first hour. And I realize I'm saying this on, on broadcast. But as a member of Rotary, I'm in a setting often, well, every time we meet, with people who think different than I do. And people in our Rotary Club know who I am and what I do for a living and what I value. And there are opportunities that I have to speak about different things. Uh, sometimes uh, an opportunity where I have the freedom to speak from my, uh, me as a person. Sometimes there have been situations where something's happening in the world, and I think it's an appropriate moment to offer a prayer. Now, you can do that in an insulting and um, divisive way. But I find in the public square, it's possible to say, I realize that, um, that not all of us are prayers, but uh, in my life, that's a big important thing to me. And given the circumstances here, I would like to pray for us. And if you would like to join me in a spirit of prayer, wonderful. And if not, then I'll just let you, you know, wait and we'll be done in a moment. And then when you speak, it's you can speak too. But for me, this is who I am. I'd like to pray for us. And that's never been ill-received. See? So that's different than saying, 
we shall now bow our collective heads, repent, walk the aisle, and join Sunset Bible Church. Uh, No, no, nothing's forced. I don't have to hide the fact that I'm a Christian. Uh, I don't have to be insulting about it. So these are things to think about, a redemptive presence. And that's just one little example out of my world, um, but, but, but you find them in yours. You can speak of your values. Now, implication here, I have a couple of things, and I want to th- I'm not done thinking about this with you. We're called to be difference makers. We're called to seek human flourishing as an implication of the gospel. And if you read much, you, you might you know, balk a bit at my use of the term human flourishing because it's often used in more liberal settings to speak of the social gospel is what people would, would talk about that. And I don't mean it in that context at all. Human flourishing, as I'm using the term, means the good of everybody. There are things that Christians should press for in a culture that are good for everybody. They are. Um, just because somebody isn't an evangelical Christian doesn't mean you shouldn't stand up for them when they get beat up or assaulted in, in the public square. If someone comes to our country who's an immigrant and a person of another faith, it should matter to you if they get beat up because they're wearing different clothing. You should stand against that as a Christian. Not because you have the same faith, but because people shouldn't get beat up for what they believe. See? That's, Christ, that's human flourishing. It's Christians saying, okay, I don't necessarily agree with you in every case, but there's a Christian presence here, and that's wrong. We don't do that. So don't. Speaking kindly to others who may be miles apart from you, philosophical or in lifestyle. Are you kind? Or do you talk to someone with a different lifestyle, like they're from another planet? Well, a Christian value would say, this is a person made in the image of God. It's an image bearer of the king. I will be kind to you. See, redemptive presence. These are things Christians need to think about in a world divided. Now, a couple of things I'm just going to just throw out real quickly um, because they fit under redemptive presence. If you study Old Testament, a good example of this, Exodus 31, you find in the making of the tabernacle that God equipped certain people in the arts. The arts are very uh, often um, uh, places of battlefield, whether it's uh, media, print media, or, or movies and things like that. And sometimes you just say, it's just it's all bad. Run from it. Well, on the other hand, um, Andy Crouch, a book I have not read, so I can't necessarily recommend it yet. Uh, he talks about this a bit. Look forward to reading it. Culture making about the value of Christians uh, expressing their faith even through, the, through arts. Um, uh, in Exodus 31, God gifts people with artistic ability to make the tabernacle a beautiful place. That's an example of God valuing. Some of you are artist-type people. Um, others of you are not. Um, you've heard me speak about the European Leadership Forum that I'm privileged to be a part of. It's replanting the gospel in, on the continent of Europe. And Kathy and I were there a couple of years ago in person before all of these uh, recent things. Uh, something we found that in addition to the different networks and resourcing for theologians and church planters and New Testament scholars and Old Testament scholars and youth people and all manner of other, they had a section for Christian artists. Isn't that interesting? That would, that would teach them to use whatever medium they work with to communicate Christian values. And so as we were there uh, in that setting in Poland, um, there toward the end of the week, the artists were putting their works of art out by the main meeting area. So when you walked in, 
you'd see what they created to speak of their faith. Some of them very obvious, like, man, that's a powerful piece that addresses the cross in symbolic form. A couple of them you'd look at and go, huh, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> but it meant something to the artist. I just didn't know what it was. I was a little slow on the art pickup thing. Um, my, my point is redeeming, redeeming. Um, and another element, and I'm just going to go very quickly on this, the place of Christians in redeeming and being used of God in the midst of culture. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs from a declaration that's now about a, a decade old. It's not one that I would adopt. I wouldn't sign it in its entirety. It's long, uh, arduous, um, more inclusive in some areas than I would, I would think uh, maybe would be biblically accurate. But there are a couple of paragraphs I want to read where they're trying to say that down through the years, Christians have done some good things in culture. That's what they're trying to say. They've done some redemptive things, and we could learn from that. So I, I read then, and again, I'm, these are other people's words, and at various places I would nuance it different or leave it out. But nonetheless, a couple paragraphs, uh, this declaration says, well, fully acknowledging the imperfections and shortcomings of Christian institutions and communities in all ages, indeed, we claim the heritage of those Christians who defended innocent life by rescuing discarded babies from the trash heaps in Roman cities, publicly denouncing the empire's sanctioning of infanticide. We remember with reverence those believers who sacrificed their lives by remaining in Roman cities to tend the sick and dying during plagues. Yes, who died bravely in the Colosseums rather than to deny their Lord. After their barbarian tribes overran Europe, Christian monasteries preserved not only the Bible, but also the literature and art of Western culture. It was Christians who combated the evils of slavery. Uh, papal edicts in the 16th and 17th centuries decried the practice of slavery and first communicated anyone involved in the slave trade. Evangelical Christians in England, led by John Wesley and William Wilberforce, put an end to the slave trade in that country. Christians under Wilberforce's leadership formed hundreds of societies to help the poor, the imprisonment, and child laborers who were chained to machines. Did you know that happened? And who spoke against it? Well, God's people. God's people said, wrong, don't do that. Seeking human flourishing and common good. In Europe, Christians challenged the divine right of kings. This is big stuff from Os Guinness. Successfully fought to establish the rule of law. Okay? The rule of law and the balance of governmental powers that made modern democracy possible. Who laid the groundwork? In America, Christian women stood in the vanguard of the suffrage movement. Uh, the comment here, the great civil rights crusades of the 50s and 60s were led by, led by Christians claiming scriptures and asserting the glory of the image of God in every human being, regardless of race, religion, age, or class. The same devotion to human dignity has led Christians in recent decades to work to end the dehumanizing scourge of human trafficking and sexual slavery, bringing compassionate care to AIDS sufferers in Africa, assisting in a myriad of other human rights. Why are there human rights? What is the source? Well, God, God, that's why Christians should care. Providing clean water, developing nations, homes for tens of thousands of children orphaned by war, disease, and gender discrimination, and they go on from there. And, I, you know, if you've traveled at all to the ends of the world or know those who have, you know that in some of these little out-of-the-way places, and you go and there's a clinic or a little school, you know what? 
chances are good that somebody in the name of Jesus was there ahead of you. See, and that's a, that's a historical fact. Who started those little clinics? Probably somebody named in the name of Jesus who went there and said we should take care of people. All of that to say God's people should be a redemptive presence in this world. So I'm, I'm offering these two elements today. Aliens and strangers, this world is not your home. You are called to be distinct. And you are called to be difference, a difference maker. Somehow, some way in this world. Content correct. Attitude correct. See, I think both of these need to be said. Danger. When God's people forget this. You see in front of you, when they forget to be a redemptive presence, they become part of the noise. If all you do is talk, tell people how it ought to be, you're just adding to the noise. Who needs it? Now, my, my final response elements there. Uh, sometimes God's people in talking about culture get stuck on things like movies and entertainment and schools and things. And I understand all those are important. They are. I'm saying the discussion of Christians and culture goes a lot deeper and a lot broader. And that's what I've wanted to press on today. Two things to ask as I interact with culture. One, is my heart drawn toward Christ or away from him? That's something for you to think about. As you, as you imbibe culture around you, whatever those things are. And second, does that thing, was that involvement in culture help you live redemptively? Great commandment. Great commission. Well, I want to I close with this. Um, a quote that sometimes you hear, it's like bumper sticker theology from a Christian a long time ago, St. Francis of Assisi, who is credited with saying and probably didn't, um, you know, indeed, um, probably didn't say, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Before I kick that to the curb completely, I do, I'm going to do so with great respect. I'm just going to say this. It is necessary to use words. The statement, whoever said it originally, was trying to emphasize action. Yes, I understand that. And sometimes Christians love that phrase, put it on T-shirts. I'm just saying this. For someone to come to Christ, they do need the words of the gospel. What do you mean, if necessary? It is necessary to know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, lives today, and is coming again. That is necessary to say. If necessary, use words. Use words. I hope you believe the gospel today. I hope you know Christ truly, deeply, personally. I'd like to pray for us. If you'd stand and join me in that, I'm going to... Put this table down below if you want to come and touch my books. <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the morning. Uh, we trust our way to you this week and pray that you would you, uh, do gospel good through us this week, both in the content of what we say and in the manner in which we say it, that we would be true salt and light in this dying world. Bless your people most of all by turning us to Christ today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.